All right, you ready? Here we go. Let me oh, press God. play. Okay. I'm recording on the audio dial. <laughs> Good. <laughs> discussed many times that it uh, seems like it's always Gene Kuhn who's bringing us the comedy on this show, Star Trek, a show you don't usually think of comic, but yet it has its amazing comic moments. You know, we've seen uh, in the last uh, several weeks, we've seen uh, Trouble with Tribbles, which is a good one, uh, I'm Mud, and while uh, both you and I agree that Star Trek should never be solely about the comedy that uh, when the comedy works and gets the message across then uh, it's a great episode and I think that that's what we have this week with a piece of the action as always my name's Matt coming to you from Austin and coming to us from Planet Houston as always is my brother Ken say hello Ken hailing frequencies are open there we go perfectly said well we are talking about a piece of the action this week oh boy what a crazy fun episode this was. Uh, why don't you give us a, a quick uh, rundown of what you thought of this episode before we get into the specifics. So, the core of the episode is about the Prime Directive and the principle of non-interference. We have a situation which we occasionally get in Star Trek in which some previous ship or crew has intervened in a way that's inappropriate uh -huh. And things are screwed up. And now our crew comes along and has to deal with that problem. Correct. That premise laid out, from there on out, it's going to be William Shatner playing a gangster. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. So you get some interesting conversation about should we do this, should we do that, should we help them in this way, should we you know, dial this back. You get the, the big three, Spock, right. Coy, and Kirk, having these conversations. But built around that, <laughs> Shatner puts on his gangster voice. <laughs> All right, you hear me? <laughs> I'm on a piece look of the action. <laughs> look at here, sweetheart, as he says once. Yeah. He calls that kid baby. Who are you calling <laughs> a baby? Meant nothing personal. <laughs> That's the great thing, too, about this show. And, like, I could have gone... I, I tried to back off as much as I could, but there were so many lines I just wanted to keep quoting that, that were so great. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't. Sometimes I feel like I do too much of it. We'll see. Anyway, let's get into it on this episode. Uh, it was This is actually an idea Gene Roddenberry came up with uh, way back in his 1964 Star Trek proposal. He called it... President Capone. And it was basically a parallel world. Uh, Chicago, 10 years after Al Capone won and imposed gangland statutes upon the nation. That was the idea. Uh, he then took it uh, with another writer named Clayton Johnson, 
who submitted a story outline in 1966 called Chicago 2, but uh, they quickly abandoned it. So they go to uh, David Harmon, who had written The Deadly Years, and he had a similar idea called The Expatriates, where the Enterprise chases an old-style ship, which is manned by descendants of the former residents of Earth, so kind of space-seed, right, to start. Uh, having been away from Earth for so long, they adapted the language, attitudes, and ethics of old Chicago mobsters. That sounds a little bit crazy, obviously. Harmon went on to say, I felt that Western civilization is based on Judeo-Christian ethics. So what I did was say, suppose that people had salvaged a book called The Life of Al Capone, which they were then treated as their own version of the Bible, from which their entire society is based. So not surprising, uh, surprising at the time, producer Gene Kuhn liked uh, the story and uh, the the comment it made on the imitative influences of literature and uh, social development, of course, in this completely absurd way. Uh, not surprisingly, Robert Justman didn't love it. Uh, there was a moment in this copy of the script where, draft, I mean, of the script, where the gangsters were using a high laser beam to, like, keep the Enterprise at bay. So Justin, of course, had to ask the question of, like, if we've regressed into this where people are using Tommy guns and walking around and talking like Elliot Ness, then uh, why do they have this high degree of sophistication, you know, where they're able to do this? So uh, that was one of the things he didn't like, the illogic of it. He says, even more puzzling is the fact that we established that these people uncomplicated as they are, have devised this laser beam strong enough to cut through the hull of the Enterprise. How is that even possible? He also doesn't understand what show this is. He's like, is it a tragic comedy? Or is it comedy drama? Is it a drama? Is it pure comedy? What's happening? I don't understand what this show is all about. So Kuhn, of course, he's amused by this bizarre tale, disagrees with all the criticism sent in on it, and tells Harmon to go ahead and do the, uh, the first draft of the script. <laughs> Typical Kuhn, that sounds like to me, you know, somebody who's like, no, no, there is a story here, and we're going to love it. Let's do it. So, of course, Justman then goes on to say, I do not believe that the civilization of this planet should have originally come from Earth. I much prefer the idea of a civilization that has developed fairly consistently like our own, but then learns the, uh, exact, the exact opposite of our own so-called morality. So, of course, this sticks into uh, Gene Kuhn's head, and, of course, later when he goes back and uh, writes the script, uses this idea in the script that we know it. So here we have, like, one of the interesting ideas of Star Trek, the parallel Earths, right? Right. In which we... In fact, I think it's during the second season they come up with a law, you know, that explains why there's all these parallel Earths. Uh-huh. That might have and, even been the first one, the first season where, uh, ah, I don't remember the name of it, but the one where uh, they go to the planet and the kids with the bonk bonks. Yeah. Because they're, the, they're on the set of Mayberry in that episode. I forget which, I think it may have been the Roman episode, Bread and Circuses that we did a few weeks back, where they actually named the law. Oh, you might be right. You might be right. I mean, they do talk about, in that the other one, why oh, can't I remember the name of that one? They do talk about, you know, the fact that there are 
parallel Earths, but right. I think that you're right that there's a very specific thing that they like chalk it up to or that they like grant the law to. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go on with what you were saying. So it's interesting to see them, you know, actually discussing this this question of is it a parallel Earth? It is a different civilization that then gets influenced by Earth. Is it, you know, like is it a brownie? Is it a cookie? You know, <laughs> what exactly? <laughs> what exactly right. is it? So, of course, uh, DC Fontana, of course, has a bunch of not great things to say about it either. She doesn't get it. She's like, what type of story is this? <laughs> People keep asking that question. Is it either fish or fowl? Oops. It is neither fish nor fowl, not comedy or drama. And nothing is terribly imperative. There is no feeling, at this point, after the uh, second draft, um, there is no feeling of real danger to our people on our ship. And all the so-called heavies are inept and one-dimensional characters— and our regulars are cursed with lethargy, disinterest, and a certain amount of ineptitude themselves. <laughs> Fontana's memo went on for 11 pages. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. Uh, but for Kuhn, uh, says Cashman, the premise struck him as funny, and he knew that he could easily sprinkle in the necessary laughs as long as Harmon's story structure conveyed the necessary Jeopardy situations as well. It seemed child's play to Kuhn, so he sent Harmon off to work uh, to finish the second draft teleplay. Of course, at this point then, uh, in the writing process, Kuhn has decided, uh, you know, he's going to step down, as we've discussed many times. And so, uh, therefore, uh, work on this script uh, completely stops, right? So, of course, Lucas, Robert Meredith Lucas, who takes over Kuhn's position, uh, writes to Kuhn and is basically like, hey, uh, we've got this script, and I know you kind of have to write one more for your contract, and here's this thing. And so he sends a bunch, he sends this 11-page apologetic note with notes for this episode. Uh, he says, well, sir, I hate to do this to you at this stage of the game. Uh, we have a great many problems with this script. In all probability, you will want to sit down and devise a new story structure. I hate to see a script, when rewritten, come in this shape. But certainly, we have one here. If, during the next several weeks um, I have left, I'm able to help you with this, of course, I would be glad to. So if Kuhn, of course, says, uh, all right, I'll do another script. And, of course, he already sees the humor in this episode, right? right? right. So he just decides he's going to full bore go humor full on this episode. He gets the script mostly done. He gets he gets the first three acts of the show written before he leaves that October, right? So uh, the script is then looked at again by Robert Justman, who writes to Gene Roddenberry saying, I have read Gene Kuhn's three-act revision of, I find, of uh, a piece of the action. I find it charming and amusing and do wish that we had a fourth act to go along with it. Do you think that there is any chance at all of getting... A fourth act out of Gene Kuhn. Do you think you might want to call him in New York and see if he couldn't devote a day to turning out a fourth act for us? The reason why I'm so eager uh, to ask that is that Gene has a certain style and a flair for comedy, and I would like to see that same style and flair of comedy continued into the fourth act. More importantly, I would hope that this would be the show that we would give to James Comack to direct, because we've been looking for a spot for him. Roddenberry agrees... Uh, that the series needs usable scripts, right? Because they just got their call to like, hey, you can do eight more from NBC. So they're like, oh, Jesus, we need eight more scripts. Uh. 
And although this uh, this script is sillier than Roddenberry envisioned, it was indeed a perfect fit for the talents of James Comack. John Meredith, Lucas, and Kuhn type off uh, the fourth act on October 25th. Lucas tidies it up for the final fourth draft five days later with page revisions to follow, based on suggestions from Fontana, Justman, and the director himself, James Comack. Now, James Comack, he was 43 at the time he took this. He was a former stand-up comic and a writer actor, director, and producer for television. So Comac had, uh, at this point, done a lot of, like, comedy television. He had written and directed for both My Favorite Martian and Get Smart, uh, but he also had experience in directing action shows like Tarzan. Uh, he was also uh, a popular director on The Courtship of Eddie father, Eddie's Father with uh, Bill Bixby himself. He said, this was a fun script to do because of the comedy. And Bill Shatner loves to do comedy, as you and I have already discussed. Yeah. Uh, something that was fun for me was having Spock and Kirk come down with this great intellect and intelligence that they possess and having to deal with monkeys. <laughs> These guys had the IQ of about room temperature. <laughs> so I love the idea. You know, DC earlier was saying, uh, hey, you know, these guys are kind of one dimensional, blah, blah, blah. But it's like they made them that way you know it's like the the final draft of the script plays into that idea because you know there's no backstory to a lot of these gangsters and you know i I keep thinking of like guys and dolls right like that's what this story reminds me of and you know there's no big backstory for you know uh Nicely, nicely, Johnson and right. and uh, those guys. So uh, I think it plays perfectly into this kind of episode, don't you think? So one of the things that comes out of this episode, right, is the trope "Planet of Hats." This is the trope namer, right? Because right. of course the thing that gives you know they they all got these hats, these fedoras, these gangster hats. And by doing that, by going with, we're going to make stock gangsters. The minute you see them, you're going to know who they are. Their accents, the Tommy guns, the way they're dressed. You know, everything about this is going to just tell you, oh, they're gangsters. I got it. I know what's going on. And, of course, that's part of how Planet of Hats works. But it also allows you just to do this story in which you don't have to do a whole lot of, well, how do they end up, like with the Roman story, they spent some time trying to figure out like what was going on there and how, how did this development get to the, they're looking at magazines and seeing the Jupiter seven. And you know, we don't have to waste any time with this. We just go gangsters. The enterprise beams down to a planet of gangsters. All right. I got it. I got the episode. (laughs) Yeah. You don't need a lot of depth. I mean, I think that that's it, you know, just like you were saying with the planet of the haps, that that's, how the trope works is like you don't need a lot of backstory when it comes to these things because it's like you already know who these guys are, you know? They're uh, <sighs> Sky Masterson from Guys and Dolls, you know? Yeah. Uh, I was trying to remember the Frank Sinatra character. Nathan Detroit. <laughs> I remember it, yeah. Good old reliable Nathan. That's right, exactly. That's actually what gave it to me. I had to think of that song. <laughs> So it's funny, uh, James Comack loved directing this episode, but of course he didn't run into any of the problems that, you know, as we talked about in the previous episode of Pevney, where he's like, well, I've been playing, you know, he's dealing with Nimoy saying, I've been playing this character for a long time and I know what he would say and what he wouldn't say. And by God, he wouldn't say this, you know. 
And uh, Com- or, yeah, Comac, right? Yeah, that's his name. Yeah. Comac goes on to say, and you can't argue with the guys when they say this. But in this episode, I could say, hold it. You're down in 20th century, pal. You're dealing with morons. You've never done this before, so never you. So uh, therefore, you never could have said this before. And they would buy it. <laughs> of course, yeah. not on the spaceship. On the Enterprise, they had it down. But on the planet, I could pretty much make them do whatever they wanted. Which, of course, reminds me of one of my favorite lines from like towards the end of the episode, which uh, we'll get to when we uh, hit that part of the episode. So, uh, interesting story about Matt Jeffries, right? We have, uh, he's the guy who's designed the Enterprise, the interior of the Enterprise, and all of that. He had way back in the day done a lot of the set design for The Untouchables, the Elliot Nassau Capone show. And so it was funny because he already knew, like, how to do these sets. So let's build this set. Yeah. So, of course, that went, like, super quick. Comac had a problem with this shooting on this episode, though, uh, for one big reason, which is that there was a lot of action with shootouts and cars and whatnot. And <laughs> not a lot of people on the set for Star Trek had had a lot of experience shooting those kinds of things. So sadly, it took him an extra couple hours one day to get uh, to get that scene shot. That's why it's always easier to do a Western. Right. Yes, exactly. Everybody's done that. And we will actually have a Star Trek where they beam down and they find themselves at the OK Corral. Yes, exactly. That's coming. Uh, Comac was uh, willing to stray from the written word, something TV directors rarely did at the time, because he wasn't expecting to be hired again. His friends at Star Trek had been waiting for the right episode, a comedy, to assign him to give him a one-time gig. Besides, at this point, it was looking as though there weren't going to be many Star Treks left. Rumors had already started to swirl at this point. There was an, uh, a, a magazine that Nichelle Nichols was in and had been interviewed for. But also in that same issue was a uh, blurb that's, that uh, from a reliable source, in quotations, you know how those are, that Star Wars would not... Or Star Wars. Star Trek, I haven't done that one in a while, Star Trek would not get picked up after the summer. So here's what Cashman has to say about this episode. A piece of the action began with a flawed concept and a problematic script, one which Robert Justman feared would go, would go from comedy to tragedy for Star Trek. The writing process truly was a mission into chaos, but with the comedic talents of Gene Kuhn, James Comack, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and Jimmy Doohan, a bright and inspired cast of characters, this became a standout episode, and arguably the series' funniest hour. Turns out, Gene Kuhn had the last laugh. All right. Well, with that, I say, uh, let's get into it, shall we? Captain's log. Starting... Mission. So we open up on the bridge here. Uhura gets her call from uh, boss uh, uh, Ozzy Osbourne. Yes, Oxmix. <laughs> there we go. Ozzy Osbourne. You know me and names. It's not very good. We find out that the USS Horizon had been to this planet, but a hundred years ago it had been there. And shortly after visiting this planet, all hands were lost. So this it- is slightly more than like Archer. 
Uh uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they have I was wondering if they had subspace. I'm sure they did at that point. The radio? On Enterprise, if they had subspace or if they had the old radio technology that uh, Kirk here is talking about. Yeah, I think they had... Uh, I, I don't think we think we have anything like original series level of communications in Enterprise. But it's a little better. It yeah, wasn't I mean, 100 years. For... <laughs> it's what, like 130 years for Enterprise? I forget the exact number. Of, I'd have to go back and I'll do that while you're Sure. The story. Sounds good. So uh, Ozzy tells them, uh, hey, uh, why don't you meet me at the yellow fire hydrant at the intersection over there? So uh, luckily Scott's able to figure out where it, where it was. In a quick uh, turbo lift scene, we find out that there was apparently some kind of contamination on this planet as far as its, uh, as far as its growth and experience. It was accidental. We also learned that. And uh, before uh, this accidental contamination, they were, they were just at the beginning of industrialization. Kirk and the boys being down. As I say, it looks like a, a scene out of Guys and Dolls, right? Gangsters in bright colors all holding Tommy guns walking around. It's the Roaring Twenties. This also looks like this could have been uh, that Warren Beatty, Dick Tracy that was, uh, in, uh, came out in the 90s. But uh, before anything else can happen, a guy steps forward holding one of those Tommy guns, telling him to be like Stone or else they're dead. Credits. So it's worth pointing out here, as I have many times before, and obviously I know they're in season two at this point, and they have this whole script writing thing down to a science, but it's great how much information we get in this first, like, literally three minutes of the episode, right? You know, we find out where we're going, who's in charge, you know, uh, that there was some accidental contamination, and we've learned again about the non-interference Prime Directive, although I don't think it's called Prime Directive in this episode. So it's really interesting, all the information we have, that, like, boom, once credits roll, we're like, wow, there's a lot of the story yet to come, you know? So the second season mostly takes place between... 2267 and 2268, right? Because we're doing, you know, 300 years in the future. Yep. Whereas Enterprise takes place between 2151 and like 2155. So, yeah, like 110, 120 years. Yeah, so this would be, you know, 10 years after Enterprise. Basically the same kind of technology, probably with a few upgrades. A captain, not unlike Archer. And a lot of these principles, like the Prime Directive, not completely worked out. The Vulcans in Enterprise have a Prime Directive kind of a principle, which influences Archer in in part because Archer's pretty clever. He realizes when things are going awry. And T'Pol is there. And so you've got some of that influence. But you could easily imagine another captain in that early day, you know, leaving behind a book in the same way that McCoy yep. leaves behind a, a communicator. communicator. Yeah. <laughs> so back at it, we have some uh, language barriers. They are speaking English, but it sure is full of slang. 
suddenly a drive-by goes down, and uh, one, he, one of uh, Ozzy Mendias's men is dead. It's not good. Happens all the time, says the gangster. Sabone says, well, we are brought down to see the boss. Let's go see the boss. So they head that way, but not before the gangster is approached by two women, asking why some minor work around the uh, place hasn't been done. Some street lights and some laundry services. One girl says, we pay our percentages. We're entitled to a little services. <laughs> I did enjoy, too, that, like, right after that scene, the pink lady walks by, the girl in pink, like, walks by and checks out Kirk. That was pretty funny. We even get some, like, woozy trombone to really complete the <laughs> joke. Uh, so they finally meet uh, the boss, complete with toothpick in his mouth, playing pool. Kirk asks uh, about being the boss. The boss of what? Ozzy says, the biggest territory in the world. Spock asks about Krakow and who he is. And Ozzy says, uh, Ozzy says uh, oh, how do you know that name? Oh, well, he, uh, he, he, did a, when he killed one of your men on the way in. Oh, yeah, well, we're going to hit him back. And his gangster pal says that he will. Spock then notices a predominantly displayed book called The Chicago Mobs of the 20s, published in 1992. He shows it to Kirk and McCoy, who undoubtedly asked the boss about it. This is the book, he says. The horizon left. Oh, the contamination, says Spock. But here the boss says, I'm not here to answer your questions. I brought you here to help me. I want enough heaters to take off all of the other to take off all the other territories. Kirk, of course, refuses. There's already been enough uh, contamination on this planet. Oh, yeah. Well, if I don't get the tools I need in eight, eight hours, I'll have your crew pick you up in a box, he says. Commercial. So, of course, we got more than just the prime directive here with Kirk refusing to give him the heaters he needs, right? We Obviously, the Kirk, Kirk tries not to whenever he can to, uh, to uh, load up one side of an army against another. We saw that in uh, the episode with Tyree. What was the name of that episode? Man, the episodes are just out of my brain tonight. A Private Little War. Yes, thank you. That's the one, A Private Little War. So he's considering that thought processes. Back from commercial, the gangster then, uh, who took him in, remembers the items in his pocket, and he hands the communicator and the uh, phaser to the boss. Kirk warns them to be careful. Hey, that phaser could take out a wall. Ah, it's that good, huh? Says the boss. He then asks about the, the communicator, and Kirk explains what it is. Ah, all right. All right, I'll take Kirk and the crew to the warehouse for storage, he says. Boss, the boss then calls uh, the Enterprise. Scott here. And then we got more language problems happening here. You know, uh, yep, yep. Uh, this is great. And then, then he asks uh, Scott if he understands. And Spock's like, I don't know. <laughs> Lieutenant, check the uh, language bakes and uh, see if you can find out what a heater is. <laughs> In the warehouse, Kirk and the gang have figured out that they have obviously taken this book of mobsters to be like the new Bible, 
right, which was uh, in those other two stories by Gene uh, Roddenberry. Spock says his uh, methods are wrong, but the idea is correct. They must centralize the territories if this culture is ever going to survive. Kirk says, well, the Federation is responsible for this, so it's our job to fix it. Kirk then asks, hey, if you can get to your sociological computer, could you, uh, could you figure it out? Kirk, of course, says, uh, or Spock says, I don't have access to my computers. Yeah, I have a thought about that, says Kirk. So Kirk then decides to teach them a new card game. <laughs> uh, the, uh, 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 I have it down here, the Fizzbon. That's what it's called, Fizzbon. Fizzbit. Yeah, so in, uh, in the online game, in Star Trek Online, you can, you can play Fizzbin. <laughs> you don't have... You don't actually like play the cards, but there's a there are missions that are for crew development, uh-huh. and, and the way it's described is attempt to play a game of Fizzbin. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So the rest of them is like host a poker game, you uh-huh. know, uh, play Dabo. But when it comes to Fizzbin, you attempt to play a game of Fizzbin. <laughs> That's amazing. Kirk says he learned to play this on Beta Antares 4. It's a game that requires intelligence. I mean, I, I don't know if you all can play it. I can, play, I can play any game you can throw at me, says the gangster. Spock then says, uh, I am familiar with the society on Beta Antares 4. Spock. Spock, Spock. <laughs> Kirk, right, uh, like, hey, I'm, 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 I'm just following my lean on this one. <laughs> I'm doing a so, thing. I got a thing here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so what's funny, uh, extra funny about this is that uh, this is a lot of Kirk it, uh, uh, Shatner improvising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he basically uh, said to the, so he's like, I got this, I, I got the idea on how we could play this Fizzbon game, and so he's the one who throws out uh, the ideas for like Tuesdays, uh, but not at <laughs> night. Uh, yeah, you can play that one on Tuesday night. You can play that one. <laughs> then he turns to Spock at one point and he says. What are the odds of a royal Fizzbon? Uh, I haven't computed them, sir. <laughs> well, they're really high. Let me tell you that. So uh, then uh, Kirk drops a card. The gangster goes for it. Kirk flips the tables. They knock out all the cards and run out of Boss uh, Hog's place. Splitting up, Spock and Bones run to the radio station, and Kirk goes to grab Boss Ozzy and beam him aboard. Except. Kirk gets napped. He's taken by the gangster from one of the other uh, from one of the other syndicates and is thrown into uh, the back of a car. I love it here as Shatner bites his lip as the car is take it car takes off. (laughs) Made me laugh. In the meantime, we get a funny scene with uh, Bones and Spock at the radio station. Uh, He knocks out that lady and (laughs) Bones goes, you did that well. Spock says, uh, oh, don't worry. The radio is simple to handle. And then messes it up. <laughs> I, I did question, though. Didn't he play with a radio in the city on the edge of forever? Oh, I thought yeah. that that's what he used. So he probably shouldn't have messed that up. But that's okay. We're in a comedy episode. There's no real logic here. Anyway, he finally gets Uhura. And somehow Uhura can talk back to them on the radio, I guess. And uh, they end up getting beamed up. Kirk, meanwhile, is taken to see Mel, the cook on Alice. (laughs) 
Sorry, that's Krakow there. It's Krakow. Played by old Vic Tabak, of course, who played Mel the Cook on Alice. So believe it or not, Vic Tabak here, despite looking like he looked for the next like 30 years of his career, uh, is only like 28 or 29 in this episode. Wow. Yeah, it's funny because uh, uh, Joe D'Agosta was a, was a buddy of his and said, you know, like he kept getting all these older parts because he, even in his 20s, looked so old. So uh, Krakow says that he wants to deal with Kirk. In the middle of their negotiations, Krakow sends a girl to go over and pet Kirk, which is funny because I think at this point Kirk finds it a bit annoying. And I wasn't sure if that was Kirk or Shatner because that girl's got her hands all over him. I'm like, and not in like a sensual way. It's more of just like she's like rubbing him and rubbing his like neck. And it just looked like it was, if it were me, I'd have been annoyed actually. (laughs) Anyway, Krakow says he's going to offer him a better deal than Boss Ozzy. He says, uh, He'll cut Kirk in for a third of the action. Ah. Kirk says, uh, but you know, you know, just like he knows, that we need to unite the territories. Krakow snaps the girl back over to his side. What do you think I am, stupid, says Krakow. Kirk says, no, 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 your behavior is just arrested. I ain't never been arrested in my life, says Krakow. (laughs) (laughs) And again... I know we're in a funny episode and comedy should never always be looked at too, uh, too closely. But if there's no government, then who's going around arresting anybody is my question. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good point. Well, thank you. Uh, Krakow then threatens Kirk with some torture. And uh, Kirk is taken downstairs, put in a room all by himself. Left alone in a cell with a radio, some string, a blanket... He's going to MacGyver his way out of this. <laughs> Although I did wonder, as he's taking apart the old-time radio, I was wondering, like, how much do you know about old-time radios? Like, would you be able to do anything with it? And as I'm thinking about this question, what pops into my head? But Kirk's line from Wrath of Khan, where he says, you got to know how things work, Mr. Savick. It's true. <laughs> More proof here. Spock again says uh, that the computer can't help him. Remember this? We had useless computer in the last episode, right? Oh, uh, well, I keep feeding the information to the computer and it can't tell me anything. <laughs> Spock says there's no logical, rational way to solve this problem. So then uh, Boss Ozzy calls up and uh, offers a truce. He says, uh, it looks like Krakow has put the bag on your captain. Spock asks, Why would he put a bag on our captain? (laughs) He says, uh, hey, if you beam down, I'll call a truce. Uh, I'll help you spring the captain, and then we'll figure out a way to help help me out. Bones questions it. Can we trust him? But Spock says, we have no alternative but to trust him. Kirk has been working on a plan. He takes out the guards with a blanket and some string. Amazing. He grabs a Tommy gun and runs out. Spock and McCoy beam back down. And sure enough, it's a trap as we go to commercial. Back at it. It's the halfway point of the episode. So Spock is filling in uh, those uh, people in the audience who just happen to have tuned in. From Gomer Pyle. That's right. 
Stupid Gomer pile. <laughs> Spock says, uh, we're, or no, Bones says, but we were trying to help you. Ah, nobody helps no one but themselves, he says. Spock says, sir, you are employing a double negative. Spock then suggests to Ozzy that uh, to uh, try employing cooperation with the other bosses. You can run this planet. A cooperative fellow is a dead fellow, says Boss Ozzy. And then Kirk comes in, saving the day. Spock tells us that logic and practical information does not seem to apply here. You admit that, says Bones. To deny these facts would be illogical. Kirk then demands the clothes off of two of the gangsters. Nobody is going to put the bag on me anymore, says, says a weirdly accented Kirk. <laughs> Later, Kirk and Spock walk out in costume. That's a fun little scene. They look so great. Kirk attempts to drive. That does not go well. We have the, uh, the oh-so-old comedy of trying to drive the car. Kirk puts it in reverse on accident. Then uh, he takes off, but the car keeps lurching. Doesn't know how to work that clutch, I don't think. That's what it seems like. Kirk arrives on Krakow Street, and they try to surmise a way in. You are an excellent starship captain, but as a taxi driver, you have a, leave a lot to be desired. <laughs> some kid is there, and he's like, hey, is this going to be some kind of hit? What are you talking about? Go away, kid. No, I can help you. I just want a piece of the action, he says. So uh, he distracts the guards. He runs up and pretends to be knifing the guys and then pretends to get hurt. Crying for his father, Kirk runs in, pretending to be said father, but then knocks the guards out at Krakow's door. Before walking in, he looks at the kid and says, piece of the action. Uh, then they go in, they stun some guards, but again are caught by Krakow and taken prisoner. Taking their guns, Krakow starts fiddling with the phaser, including shaking it. That doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> Then Shatner goes into pure Brando. I think it's Brando anyway. Whatever it is, it's funny and we're enjoying it. An outfit like this is peanuts when compared to the rest of the Federation, he says. Right? Looking at Spock. Undoubtedly. Right? Says Kirk. Oh, uh, right. Says Spock. <laughs> the Federation is here and we're going to take this whole ball of wax, says Kirk. I thought you had a no uh, interference promise, uh, no interference policy, says Krakow. Who's interfering? We're taking over, says Kirk. Kirk then sits down and puts his feet up. Spock then follows and puts his feet up. <laughs> Kirk then uh, tricks Krakow and has him beam to the ship. Spock and Kirk knock out his men. Well, I mean, I don't know if they knocks him out exactly. Kirk runs up, shakes the guy like four times, and then punches him. That apparently is all you got to do. It's an easy knockout way right there. We then see Krakow on the ship, and he's confused. Spock tries to use the jargon unsuccessfully. <laughs> You're meant to be careful. But amusingly. <laughs> yes, but amusingly. You'll end up in concrete galoshes, he says. You mean, uh... Cement overshoes? Oh, yeah, whatever. 
<laughs> Kirk then uh, runs back out into the street, almost getting hit by another car. He's not used to this whole car thing. He then but, points to the car and says, But ahead. he doesn't yell, double dumbass on you. No, we're saving that for the movies, man. <laughs> uh, he uh, points to the car. He's like, it's the quickest way back. Spock looks a little skeptical. Are you afraid of cars? He asks. No, sir, of your driving. <laughs> Kirk then pops into the car, but of course goes into reverse again. Krakow's men come to and they decide that they're going to run Oxy Mox's Oxymoron's place, whatever his name is, and take the take uh, and take him back. Oxmix. Yes, Oxmix. But back at Oxmix's place, Kirk uh, makes a call, and uh, uh, Kirk tells Oxmix to uh, make the call, and then has all the other bosses transported to Oxy's house. Oxmix is excited about this and tells him so. He then turns towards Spock, who says, and this is my favorite line, I'd advise you keep dialing. <laughs> he even uses the accent. It's so great. So uh, once all of the uh, bosses are there, they're all standing around the table. Kirk is in full Brando mode at this point, going crazy. It's great. You got to run it like a business. And I'm cutting the Federation in for 40%. But here, then, suddenly everyone starts to suspect that maybe the Federation isn't all-powerful like Kirk seems to be intimating. Hmm. I only saw three guys on your ship, says Krakow. Maybe there ain't no more. But then, suddenly, outside, Krakow's boys show up. And at one point, uh, Oxmix here says, calls the Federation the Feds, which I thought was funny. Aha, we got you now, and we're going to use you as hostages, they say. All right, but at least let me call my ship one last time to say goodbye. This somehow works. <laughs> I don't know why. Because <laughs> these guys are idiots, apparently. <laughs> Scotty? Sentimental okay. idiots? <laughs> yes, how does that, how does that so. work? Scotty, this is quick, he says. He then has uh, all the men outside the building stunned by a phaser blast. All right. Everyone believes Kirk after that. They decide they're going to run it like a syndicate. Uh, they, they even invite Kirk to take over and be the leader of the syndicate. But he says, ah, the Federation can't get involved in a small time thing like this. So Oxmix has then made the he uh, made the... Oh, my God. Come on. Oxmix has <laughs> then made the uh, head of the syndicate crack out of the lieutenant with everyone else underneath. Back on the ship, Kirk looks to get the boys' take on their mission. Spock wonders how Starfleet will feel about their 40% cut. <laughs> Bones then is worried about his left communicator in Bella's office. Kirk says, you know what my only concern is? I'm really worried that the Ioceans will want to call us and want a piece of the action. <laughs> we cut to the Enterprise leaving orbit. And that will do it. <laughs> such a fun episode. Such a fun episode. It is. See, it's great. So you look at this episode when compared to not last week's, but the week before's episode, right? 
where, okay, we don't have a lot to talk about as far as, like, moral conundrums. We don't have a lot to talk about when it comes, you know, uh, when it comes to interpersonal relationships. This isn't, you know, Journey to Babel where we're dealing with, you know, all of that going on. There's not a lot of meat to this episode, but at least then the comedy helps fill in the blanks, right? Not even the blanks. It just helps fill in the, like, how quick the episode feels. You're not like, oh, my God, is this episode ever going to end? <laughs> You're not wondering what the hell are we going to talk about? Because it's just fun. We're just having a great time, like, watching this episode. As opposed to, again, two episodes ago where we were like, oh, boy. I don't know what we're going to talk about, you know? <laughs> Star Trek performed well when this episode aired. For the first half of this episode, it was in second place with 26.6% of the share. As always, Gomer Pyle had 43.8% of the share. But in the second half hour, they were up against CBS's Friday Night Movie, which tonight was A Shot in the Dark, which of course is the sequel to The Pink Panther. Peter Sellers' uh, great take on the Pink Panthers movies. Inspector Clouseau. That's right. But did uh, lose, unfortunately, the second half hour to Operation Entertainment, which we may have discussed before. It was a show where they go to different military bases and perform for the troops. This week, this episode was in San Antonio. Also interesting, it was George Carlin there who was hosting this week and doing some of the uh, comedy for this episode. So I thought that was fun, especially since Vic Tabak premieres at the beginning skit of one episode of George Carlin's comedy sketches so it all ties back together there to start <laughs> uh, this episode was also one of the shows that aired during the summer and uh in the summer it won both the first and the second half out well i didn't win i mean it was in second place obviously we're still going up against gomer pile i mean there's no but it was in second place with a full 26% of the share on the on uh, that hour. Robert Justman had this to say uh, as a final thought on this episode. I fought against uh, this one perhaps more so than any other episode we did. I could not understand why Gene Kuhn wanted to do that story, but I must admit he pulled it off with the humor that he added, and Gene Roddenberry allowed him to do so, and I will not even try to explain that. It will have to remain a mystery for you and for me as well. Good old Robert Justin. All right. Well, that is all I have got to say on this episode. Anything you want to talk about? Nope. It was a fun episode. I think the cast was playing at their, at their high level of, of comedy capabilities that, that they can do every once in a while, especially when they get a good script. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We had a script, a, a script that's written with the comedy in mind. Right. We had enough of the kind of Star Trek problem. You know, this is basically like uh, um, the episode with the Mintakins in Next Generation, except instead of being primitive Bronze Age proto-Vulcans, you know, they're like semi-industrialized humans who get a book about being gangsters <laughs> and so it's played for laughs right. instead of having a serious moral dilemma in which the captain gets injured and they have to prove he's not a god 
Instead, he's just a crime boss. That's right. But we have the same problem. He's got to prove he's a crime boss, so that the Federation's powerful and they you know, bring the ship's phasers in. Yeah, it's true. That's true. I guess the one thing we didn't really talk about is like of the use of the non-interference. I mean, uh-huh. I know that they were trying to use the, uh, you know, the fa- they weren't trying to use the phasers in full, you know, view of everyone. They tried to only use them when, uh, you know, people weren't looking. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess they held to their non-interference the best that they could. They were trying to establish a government, which they sort of did, even though it's a mob-run government. But we can only hope that uh, many years down the line that they've uh, figured out the folly of their ways. Or maybe not. Or maybe the Federation will be like, Jesus, what did you do, Enterprise? <laughs> and sends in a bunch of people to help fix them. I don't yeah, know. So it's, it's, it's hard to imagine how they would have... Because in one sense, what do you do? Like when you realize that 100 years ago, they left a mob template, and it's had 100 years to, to develop, and now it's kind of considered religious and sacred, and you can't criticize the book. Right. It's not like Kirk had a whole lot to work with because he, he just showed up. Yeah. You know, it's not like he was given a, well, you know, the Excelsior has just been there. And they report that the planet's been contaminated. It's a mafia-run planet. You know, and uh, start our Federation anthropology has come up with this strategy. We want you to implement it. And right. Basically, Kirk is the guy who shows up and go, whoa! <laughs> Because one of the things, and I mean, I know that, hey, we're dealing with, you know, the origin of the, in, I mean, in real, in real life, we're dealing with the origin of, you know, Star Trek here. We're dealing with, so there are so many things that we don't or aren't prepared for. But I think that that's one of the things that they do in Next Generation all the time is, you know, it's like, oh, well, we got a, uh, we're supporting a, uh, you know, we're backing up a Federation Thing we found that this planet needs help from, you know, the uh, sociological side of the Federation or an expert on, you know, interference and whatnot who are going to help, you know, fix the fix the nation. And I wonder if Federation at this point even has something like that going on, you know. Well, like I said, that's the end of this episode. Oh, my gosh, I don't even know what the next episode is. Let me look real quick. I can dig out that information. Next episode is another episode I've never heard of called By Any Other Name. Captain Kirk answers a a distress call when he turns out to... Whoops. Which turns out to be a ruse by a superior race to capture the Enterprise and its crew. Dun, dun, dun. All right, well, that'll wrap up this week's episode. My name's Matt coming to you from Austin. And as always, is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. There we go, and we'll see you all next week.